Folks, I want to welcome you. Uh, we have the opportunity, the great opportunity, to have a conversation with one of the most dynamic uh, Marxist theorists living in Britain today, uh, with Harpal Brar, uh, a founder of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, uh, a lifelong revolutionary activist and writer. Uh, you can watch his presentations across the internet. Uh, you can read some of his, his greatest writings. Uh, his latest book is on socialism with Chinese characteristics, but you know, for years he's been, been publishing very, very good theoretical uh, Marxist material. Uh, you know, we've got Perestroika, the complete collapse of revisionism, uh, you know, social democracy, the enemy within, uh, a very good book uh, that he's written, uh, Im Imperialism, the Eve of Revolution by the Proletariat. Uh, so many very dynamic publications. It is such an honor to be able to speak with, with Mr. Harpal Brar. Uh, really, really just an honor. Uh, thank you so much for, for appearing here today. Thank you, Caleb, for that um, in, in introduction. Whether it's well-deserved or not, I leave it to you and to your audiences, but it, it, it's really equally an honor for me to be able to speak to you. I see you all the time on television. I see you on RT. I see you on various other platforms, and I hear about you, and it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to have a direct conversation with you. But please be as critical as you like of whatever I have written. Uh, I'm not asking people to be my fan club. I want to discuss certain ideas which I think should be available to the public at large. Sure. Well, before we get to that, I actually I, I wanted to praise you for the fact that you're you're such a very modest person. Uh, you know, I, I've read so many of your writings and such, but I know so little about you uh, and, and about your life and, and such. Can you share with the viewers uh, how you became a revolutionary organizer, how it was uh, that you you know, you got into the to the business of publishing these these revolutionary writings and giving these presentations. Uh, how did you become who you are? I don't think I had any plan, Caleb. I was born in a family, a landowning family of exploiters, and the idea of being a communist was completely alien to me and 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 people of my ba my background. I went to Delhi University. I hung around with people who were vaguely progressive, but I don't think I understood anything about Marxism. What brought me closer to being a radical were two things that happened in the last year of my stay in India. One was the murder of Patrice Lumumba by the imperialist countries with, uh, you know, who sent their guns wearing blue bearers, i.e. the United Nations cover, and they destroyed uh, the Lumumba government and Congo has been in mess ever ever since then. And I remember going to a huge demonstration outside the Belgian embassy in New Delhi, uh, organized by the then United Communist Party of India. So that's one experience. The other one was the Bay of Pigs invasion by the United States, which uh, had an electrifying effect on people who l stood for justice and saying, you can't do that. It's nothing to do with you. What Cuba does inside its borders is within Cuba's sovereign rights. So these were the two things. Then I came over to England, and that is when the Vietnam War really began to, to, be, to become very, very hot. Before that, it was a low-level conflict. The Americans were there. They had few troops. But then uh, 
by the, the 64, uh, the Johnson government had started bombing Hanoi because they say, well, you know, they were losing in South Vietnam because the North Vietnamese were committing aggression, i.e. committing aggression against their own country. And uh, it, it's like Abraham Lincoln was committing aggression against against the southern states uh, in order to kept, keep their country united. So these were the two things. And then there were a lot of student activities taking place, and I took part in them. Again, as nobody, I wasn't somebody important. I wasn't given any platform. I just attended these meetings. That's how the whole thing started. And then while I was at the university, everybody who came across, whether they were right-wing, left-wing, or even called themselves communists, the first thing they say is communism doesn't work because only people like Stalin get into power and everything goes haywire. So I said, why is everybody singling out Stalin, of whom I knew very little? So I decided to read Stalin, and I found him refreshingly, remarkably revolutionary thinker, very clear, and could say the things, most complicated things, in a very straightforward way. And I hate to say that, in a way that neither Lenin nor Marx nor Engels could say. It's not because they were fools. It's just he had the benefit of them having been before before them. He could actually synthesize what had to be said. So I became a hated Stalinist. I was that during my university days, and I have remained since then. In fact, there's a turn in events. There's far less hostility to Stalin these days because anti-Stalinism just does not work. I don't think Stalin needs any defense from somebody like me. Stalin has been defended by history. What he's done is there for all of posterity to see. He doesn't need any defense. If we defend Stalin, it is because we want to defend our own future, not just our heritage, not just the past, but the future. So that's how I became. The books, really, each subject came at a particular time. I've never written for fun. I've never written for money. I make no money out of my writings. Um, and the first major thing I wrote was the book you showed, Perestroika, the collapse of uh, a complete collapse of revisionism. Now, I wrote that book not out of fun, but I felt so much pain to see this great enterprise first, for the first time entered into by humanity. And it had such achievement to its credit and it was destroyed, not by, by imperialism, by, by the internal enemies, the Khrushchev Act revisionists. And in my view was, and that's the view I put forward in that, is that there was not only ideological corrosion, but also undermining of the socialist planned economy. So it's the market reforms that led, that led, to, the, led, that led to the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union. Whether anybody was convinced by that or not, that's my view. And I remain convinced that, that was the reason. It's not the lack of reforms. It's the so-called reforms within quotation marks that undermine the Soviet Union. And by the time Gorbachev comes, the thing is ready to collapse. And Gorbachev simply says, we want markets. We want market socialism. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he was shameless enough to say, anybody in my position would have given up. I hung on 
and made sure that this system was 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 gone. And so, and and somebody in as exalted a position as being the general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, with Lenin and Stalin being its uh, great leaders, he actually comes down to going to burger bars and advertising McDonald's for money. Yeah. Yeah, I think we all remember the the Pizza Hut advertisement uh, that, that that he did. Yeah, uh, yeah. That now I'm curious. Um, you know, I mean, when you talk about about Stalin, um, you know, there's some who might look on this and say, look, the 1930s, the 1950s, that was a long time ago. Uh, why make why make this one individual, uh, you know, who lived in the Soviet Union? Why make him the cutting edge of debate? Why why does Stalin matter in our time? And why is Stalin uh, a pivotal point of controversy that that you so firmly take one position on? Uh, what would you say to those who say perhaps this is a, a historical argument that's not relevant in our age? Well, there, there are two points. The greatest achievements of a planned socialist economy took place under Stalin. That just happens to be a fact. You know, the Soviet planning starts in the year 1928. Stalin dies in 1953. And you can look at the achievements of the Soviet Union, not only in the field of production, in the field of culture, in the field of science, in the field of defense, everywhere. You know, that crowning victory of the Soviet Union against the Nazis in the Second World War. These are not mean achievements, and therefore you... Stalin cannot be written out of history. If I can take you an example of a, from a feudal period in, 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 in the United Kingdom, you cannot write either Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth out of British history. If you take that out, you actually cut that history down to a very puny size. Now, I'm not a supporter of Henry VIII. I'm not a supporter of Elizabeth. I am a supporter of Stalin. But it's just the historical role that people play. And under the present government of Gorbachev, they're not communists, they're not Stalinists, but they can see that if you cut out what was done in the Soviet period, there'd be nothing left in modern Russian history. So I take that basically uh, that Stalin had a pivotal role to play. He had to fight not only against imperialism, but against the internal enemies, the Bukharanites, the Trotskyites, and everybody else. I think you had to be a genius to actually come through that and walk through that minefield with great dexterity as Stalin did. And that's the reason for that. It's not a personal relationship. He's not related to me. I have never benefited from him personally, and I'm not likely to benefit. In fact, I've suffered for associating myself with him. But I still think, like Galileo, you know, at the time the church preached that the sun moved around the earth. And Galileo said, no, it's the earth that moves around the sun. And he was put under a lot of pressure by the church, by the Pope. And as he's in his deathbed, a cardinal is sent to ask him, what did he think? And he said, it still moves. I, the earth moves around the sun. Truth is truth. And, uh, you know, people constantly talk about seeking truth from facts. And they only by ignoring facts can you minimize Stalin. And that, that, that's the reason. It's the association he has with the defense of the dictatorship of the proletariat, with the defense of planned socialist economy, which, as Engels said, only when that has started taking place would mankind be able to break its umbilical cord with animality and for the first time rise to the level of being human beings.
Wow. Now, you know, we're constantly told that socialism failed, that socialism's never achieved anything, never worked anywhere, never had any successes. Uh, and one thing that you have done and in your work is dig into the actual historical record of what was achieved in the Soviet Union and what was achieved uh, with the five-year economic plans. Can you go over the achievements of socialism, some of them at least? Well, the, the achievements of socialism are that by, by the end of the second five-year plan, the Soviet economy had increased by four times. They had built the industrial base um, and with the emphasis on heavy industry and within the heavy industry on machine building industry. The Soviet Union was in system that wasn't good enough to produce cars, but you had to produce the implements that produce cars, i.e. an emphasis on the production of the means of production. As, as Lenin constantly pointed out and Stalin insisted on following that line that it's not good enough for Russia to have good agriculture. It's not good enough for Russia to have good textiles. The bond between the proletariat and the peasantry has to be based on iron. There must be tractors, there must be machinery, the agriculture must be collectivized and Soviet Union could only do that by building a heavy industry of its own. Apart from the defense aspect of it, without having heavy machinery, you cannot have even good agriculture because you can't supply it with, with, with the wherewithal of having mechanized agriculture. Although Soviet agriculture is much maligned, it was the most mechanized agriculture in the world, even more than the United States, if it's possible for you to believe, believe it. They had more tractors, they had more lorries, they had more combined harvesters, they had every kind of machinery. And when it was proposed by some revisionist economists, Yaroshenko and company, that machine and tractor stations should be made over to the collective farms, Stalin fought against that. He said, you can't do that for several reasons. One, collective farms can not be rich enough to replace that machinery. Every 10, 15 years, machinery has to be replaced which costs billions and billions of rubles, and only the state, state can do that. Secondly, if you pass that machinery onto the collective farms, you're actually passing on a huge amount of the means of production into the sphere of commodity circulation, because the collective farms, if they own that machinery, they would be the owners of that machinery. The state will not be the owners of that machinery. And without actually having the the machine and tractor stations without having the, the the means of production in the hands of the state, not just land, but also major means of production. Uh, the whole idea of progressing in the direction of higher stages of communism will disappear because you're actually giving tremendous amount of scope to the further extension of the sphere of commodity circulation. Well, that's that's something that I, I find myself often fighting for this basic understanding that the goal of communism is to raise the level of productive forces and that that our ideology is centered on the notion of historical progress. Um, and that has been so widely eroded. Many of the people calling themselves left now uh, would argue that the goal is to decrease productive forces, global warming, climate change. Everyone has too much. Uh, you know, we need to get back to nature. We need to get back to a state that's more primitive. 
Have you noticed this trend in, in left-wing circles, this, this opposition to historical product, uh, this opposition to historical progress, this belief that, uh, that, that you know, we don't want to raise living standards? Have you noticed this? Yes, I have. See, that is a luxury, Caleb, if you don't mind my saying, sure. actually which, which is promoted by the well-fed. People who have all the facilities, people who enjoy all the benefits of the development of modern, modern technology, they simply want to prevent other people from doing it. It's a bit like birth control. Those who are born are trying to prevent other people from being born. <laughs> Those people, the, you know, or, or, or the question of nuclear weapons. Those who have nuclear weapons, they said when they acquired them, they were for the safety of the world. If anybody else acquires, it's a danger to the security of the world. Or immigrants, you know, when we came to this country, we were a blessing. Everybody was blessed by our presence. But after we've come, close the door. If anybody else comes, it really is going to be a terrible thing because the country will be simply deluged by, by, by these people. I do not believe that because socialism is not to bring poverty. It's not to bring everybody to the level of the poorest person. Socialism is to actually have a productive system and a cultured life, which actually means satisfaction of the constantly rising needs of the working, pe working people on the basis of increased productivity and constantly rising production on the basis of very high technique. That is our idea of socialism. That's Marxist-Leninist idea of socialism. The other idea is a hermit's idea. It's not Marxism-Leninism. It's some kind of sadhu sitting in the middle of Himalayas and trying to tell you what, what you should be doing, who does not take part in production, who lives a parasitic life whereby everything that he needs is produced by other people. We do not want anybody to eat who does not work, except those who are disabled, who are too little, young to work, too old to work. We want people to work. But in our society, only those who don't work are the ones who eat well, the Jeff Bezos of this world, you know, Bill, Bill Gates of, of this world. Or if you take example from India, the Ambani's, the Adani's, the Tata's, these are the people who eat well, not the people who do the work. So we, we do not want a socialism, which what would be there to fight? As Stalin said, comrades, people are enthusiastic about the Stakhanovite movement. They want to work hard because life is joyous. It, it's a, that our October Revolution brought freedom. That's a very good thing. We got rid of Tsarist imperialism. That's a very good thing. But people cannot live on freedom alone. The freedom has to be supplemented by material benefits that life brings under socialism. Because socialism and socialist revolutions are not just to give you a good night on the, on, on the evening of the barricades. It is also to work hard to produce life so that actually people would have a better life. That's what socialism is about. If it doesn't bring that, what is there to fight for? Mm -hmm. Might as well sit down, have 100 useless channels, you flick channels, there's nothing much to watch, you know, and that's your life. Well, human beings cannot accept that. Yeah. Well, your, your latest book is about China. Um, and it's kind of a critique of, of the Chinese uh, economic model. Uh, do you want to summarize the thesis of your book and explain uh, why you published it, uh, why it was necessary to, to put that forward? 
Well, why I published it? Because I was forced by my party to publish it. Okay. A party congress passed a resolution um, six, seven years ago that a book should be written on China, what China is doing. Uh, they, they were not very happy about that and something should be written. And I got the job that I should do it. And I delayed as long as I possibly could. I found one excuse after another in dereliction of the obligation imposed upon me by the party. In the end, I couldn't really resist it anymore. I didn't want to write the book because for reasons of self-preservation, because anybody who writes on this subject is not going to be very popular. I won't be popular either with the reformists or with the Maoists. There are parts of uh, some stuff put, put forward by, by the Maoists. I don't say Mao himself personally, which I'm critical of, and they would not like it. And I am not in favor of the reform. The reformists won't like me, so I, I get it from, from both sides. And the second reason was the debates that took place in the Chinese Communist Party were not always that open. It was very difficult to find the correct material. In the case of the Soviet Union in the 20s and 30s, you could actually find out what was taking place. You could see what the opposition was saying. You could see what Stalin and his support, supporters were saying. Earlier on, you could see what Lenin was saying and what his opponents were saying. But in the case of China, everything takes place behind closed doors. And what comes out is almost in enigmatic form and you've got to try and interp interpret it. It doesn't mean that they were not important issues that were involved in, very important issues, but you had to somehow make up your mind. So there was positive of material as well. But anyway, in the end, I was told to write, so I, I did write. And the, the main idea that I put forward in this book is, first of all, that I support China. I actually applaud the rise of China. I do that unreservedly. If China had done what China is doing under completely under capitalism, I still would support because what the Chinese revolution has done is a number of things which cannot be done away with. First, it got rid of imperialism and imperialist domination. And it put an end to that century of humiliation. Secondly, it uprooted, the Chinese revolution uprooted root and branch feudalism, the millennial old system of land ownership. They got rid of it. They, um, within 20 years of the Chinese Communist Party coming to power, the longevity of life had increased by 30 years. Literally, it means every year of the revolution, the life expectancy of people was rising by one year. You can see the people will be grateful. If their grandparents only lived up to the age of 30 and they could live up to the age of 65, now the Chinese people can live up to 76. Now this is a tremendous achievement. The Chinese revolution got rid of illiteracy, the age-old curse. Next door India still among the younger population, only about 65% of people are li li literate. And even their literacy leaves a lot to be desired. But the Chinese got rid of illit illiteracy. Chinese brought health service, not only to the urban areas, but to the towns. During the time of Mao Zedong, they had barefoot doctors. They didn't always train doctors to the level of 
doctors in the on the Western world because for most illnesses people don't actually need to be that qualified because the disease that killed people in the countryside was not cardiovascular. They were ordinary diseases which could be cured by people who given two or three years training and they could go and reach every area. So they brought literacy. They raised the status of women. Women were terribly oppressed in China. But as Mao Zedong said, women hold half the sky. You cannot keep them behind. And really in all these areas, the Chinese were following the Soviet model. The very model that being being condemned by 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 some people. There's a recently a book published by somebody, Trotskyite in my view, called John Ross. Okay. It's called the, the Great Road of China. For my sins, I bought the book because I wanted to see what he was saying because it's being uploaded in the left wing circles very much, and you couldn't ignore it. So what is his basic thesis? His basic thesis is that the economy of the Soviet Union from 1929 to its collapse was guided by ultra-leftism. You know, it was centrally planned and centrally planned, centrally planned economy does not work. The Chinese and, and, and the, sorry, the Soviet economy, the Chinese economy, he says, from 1949 until 1978 followed the Soviet model and therefore was guided by ultra-leftism. And only when market reforms came and a mixed economy was established did China's productive forces get liberated. Well, I'm afraid he either is willfully or genuinely ignorant of the, of the facts. The Chinese made tremendous progress up to 1978, considering the very low basis from it which they had started. I give statistics in my book. I don't want to bore you with the statistics. But the Chinese did tremendous, tremendous things up to 78. And you can read the last report that the, that Chuan Lai delivered to the uh, Chinese Parliament, people, National People's People's Congress. He will tell you what the improvements were. Even the resolution on Chinese, uh, the history of Chinese Revolution, passed under the direction of Deng Xiaoping in 1981, actually details what the achievements of the, the, those uh, those 20, 20 years were. So you can't negate. You can't say that. Central economy was a failure. They did, they built tremendous amount of things. And even a bourgeois writer who hates communism, who cannot ever on any account be accused of being partial to Mao Zedong, says that Ma, all this was built under Mao. Without that building, there'd be nothing to reform. What would the reformists be reforming if nothing had been, had, had been built? So uh, I do not accept the idea that market economy is better. If a market economy is better, let us let us be honest between ourselves. Marxism is dead. You might as well ignore it. That's not what Marxism is about. If Marxist economic is economics is superior to to capitalist economics, or call it market economics, then Marxism is dead. Then the final destination of humanity is capitalism. If that is its destiny destiny, then it must face the prospect of recurrent, forever taking place, crisis of overproduction. It must face imperialist wars for the redivision of the, of the world. It must face wars on 
oppressed peoples who are fighting for national liberation and, and national salvation. So it must involve all those things, and it can't be right. So that's the achievements of the Chinese Revolution. And so I put forward the idea, a market is not superior to Marxism. And I also then put forward various other ideas in the field of science and everything, what the developments have, have been, that have been made, made, made by Marxism, both in Russia and in China and in Eastern and Central Europe. Wow. Well, I'm sure a lot of our readers are going to be ordering a copy of that book and checking it out and, and reading what you have to say and, and hearing your argument in full. Um, it sounds like a case that really needs to be made. Um, and uh, I, I did want to ask you, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, to being very outspoken against imperialism and, and against capitalism and defending the record of the Soviet Union, uh, you've been very critical of the Labour Party of the United Kingdom. In fact, you know, your book, Social Democracy, The Enemy Within, uh, it was very illuminating for me. Many of the articles republished in here talked about, you know, the Labour Party. You know, what do you I mean, we don't have a Labour Party in the United States. The Democratic Party makes no pretense of being a socialist party or or being a party of labor. But can you explain what the Labour Party really is to our American audience? What is the Labour Party uh, and why is there so much confusion about it? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, some of us here in the United States, we think it's a socialist party. Uh, you know, I understand there are Trotskyite factions in the Labour Party that are being expelled right now. And there was Jeremy Corbyn. What is the Labour Party and why have you been so firm against it over the years? Well, the Labour Party has never been a socialist party. It has always been an imperialist party, is an imperialist party and shall be an imperialist party up to its dying days. The origin of the Labour Party is basically that the well-off sections of the working class, the labour aristocracy, a term invented in your country, Lenin took it up, but it was invented by by a syndicalist in in in, in, in your your country. Wow, Daniel De Leon was it? Daniel De Leon? Absolutely, absolutely. He wow. he is the father of that phrase, but Lenin took it up quite quite ri- ri- rightly. It's the labor aristocracy who actually have very little in common with the working class. They defend imperialism because their own privileges are very much dependent on imperialist loot, right. and so. Labour Party was formed, as you know, after the Chartist movement had been developed, uh, sorry, destroyed in Britain. Uh, then the bourgeoisie went on to fulfill some of the program that the Chartist movement had, because Britain at that time had the monopoly of the world market and the largest amount of colonies all over, over the world. It could actually afford to disgorge some of its loot to better the conditions of the working class generally, but especially of the labor aristocracy. The result of that was there was no working class party in, in, in Britain. It was one of the few European countries not having a working class party. And the left wing of the working class used to vote for the liberals. You know, so they formed part of it. It's only when the liberals started attacking the labor aristocracy they decided to have a separate representation in Parliament. And that was really the beginning of the Labour Party. It started as the Labour Representation Committee. And in about 1903, it started calling itself the Labour Party. But 
every time labor had to actually side either with the working class or imperialism, either with the oppressed people or imperialism, it always sided, sided with imperialism. And that is true of the first labor government, the second labor, labor government, the Attlee government after, after, after the Second World War, the Blair government are, are afterwards and anybody. They don't even pretend to be socialist now. Under Blair, they got rid of constitution, uh, 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 the clause, clause four of their constitution, which called for the common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. This has been there and it was put in at the time of the October Revolution in order to wean people away from Bolshevism and to bring them to the, to the Labour Party. That was its main, main, main function. And Harold Wilson, who became Prime Minister in the 60s in, in Britain, Labour Prime Minister, he was asked to get rid of the of, of, of Clause 4 of the Constitution. He said, no, what harm is it doing to you? If you take the, the, the chapter on Genesis from the Bible, there wouldn't be much left of Christianity, you know. I mean, it keeps the average idiot very happy, you know, because that chapter chapter is there, which reminds me, you say, why is one person very important? And the very people who tell you Marxism is old or Stalin is so many years ago, they don't, they don't, they don't say uh, Christ is very old, mm. you know. They don't say Christianity is very old, yeah. you know. They, they can preach the absurdity of virgin birth. Well, if they can preach the absurdity of virgin birth, then certainly socialism has tremendous thing, thing, things to say. So Labour Party has has been that. Attlee government is credited with bringing free education, free health care, and number of and and better housing conditions. But it's not just Attlee government that did it. Every conservative government in Europe did it too because it took place in the aftermath of the Second World War. And two factors were most important. One was not only the Soviet Union, but the whole of Europe. It was not a capital in Eastern and Central Europe with a red flag, with a sign of hammer and sickle, did not flutter very happily and proudly. So if they didn't want the flag to move further west, they had to do something to better the conditions of the working class. Secondly, through the experience of the Second World War and the period between the two world wars, the working class in Europe was in a ferment. Not in America, but in Europe, it was in a, in a ferment and they couldn't be controlled on the basis of the old, old system. So I do not attribute these great achievements to the Attlee government but I do that to the Red Army and the Soviet Union and the general uh, ferment in the working class movement, movement in Europe. That was a way of buying social peace, peace if, you, if you like. So these days, Labour Party doesn't even pretend to be socialist. Anybody who says socialism or who says the railway should, railway should be in public ownership, even capitalists in many capitalist countries believe Railways and utilities should be in public ownership. They are better managed that, that, that way. Jeremy Corbyn tried that. This was the great hope of the Trotskyites and revisionists that Jeremy Corbyn was going to be new messiah. We wanted Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister to yet again prove that it will not bring socialism. But they didn't even allow him. He was defeated, not by the Tories, by his own party. 
his own party would rather lose the election to the Tories than allow somebody who claims to be left-wing to become prime minister. That's the position of the Labour Party. So we only really look at the facts. We have no personal hatred of anybody in the Labour Party. We just think it's a hoax. It's a major source of purveying bourgeois ideology into the working class. The sooner the working class break connections with the Labour Party, the sooner we will be able to build a proper proletarian working class movement. That's our viewpoint. Yes, you know, uh, you know, there was just a demonstration here in the United States, uh, you know, around the issue of Medicare for all. And we saw a lot of people who had been big supporters of Bernie Sanders uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the kind of the new democratic socialist uh, face of the Democratic Party in the United States just kind of pouring out their uh, their anger and their disappointment, feeling just very betrayed uh, by these figures within the Democratic Party who had claimed they would fight for the working class um, and then sold them out. Um, is I, I assume that among former supporters of Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, there's got to be a similar feeling uh, that the, you know, the Labour Party sold them out, etc. What is the approach uh, that your party and your organization takes toward former Jeremy Corbyn supporters who are now disappointed, disillusioned? How, what, what do you say to them? How do you win them uh, to, to your position and to, to an anti-imperialist and revolutionary Marxist position? What is your approach? Well, our approach is, first of all, to point to them a well-known saying of uh, Albert Einstein, to actually keep on following the same line and expecting different results is the sure sign of insanity. You have tried the Labour Party for 100 years it's not an instrument of socialism. And the left wing of the Labour Party is the conscience of the Labour Party. They are the ones who lure innocent people into the Labour Party. It's like lamb, lambs to the slaughterhouse. And so we are actually sympathetic towards these people saying, look, please learn from history. Give up this stinking corpse. Come and join us. And if you are not actually strong enough for the moment to join the CPGBML, there is a much better organization called the Workers' Party of Britain. It has a 10-point program which stands for social progress and socialism. Join them. You know, come to us if you want to, but if you don't want to, come join the Workers' Party, headed by George Galloway. Do something. Like people like Bernie Sanders, uh, Alexandra uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Omar Elhan, all these people, they actually act as the conscience of the Democratic Party. They are bigger imperialist warmongers, in my view, than Trump, if it's possible for you to believe. Yeah. Trump may be, may be a hated figure in the establishment. It's only because he said that our media propagates fake news. Yeah. He said, we don't want to be in, involved in uh, never-ending wars. Yeah. He's the president in my own life, and it's a very long life. I've lived forever, if you like. He's the first president who's not start, start, started a new, new war. He's, yeah. somebody, he's, he's somebody who actually said, NATO is not much good. He's somebody who walked away from the Trans-Pacific Agreement. I mean, by his actions, in my view, he was harming imperialism. Yeah. And the establishment says he's an idiot. Well, so much the better. Why, <laughs> why, why do we want our enemies? 
to be intelligent. Yeah. I mean, the Democratic Party has got some intelligent leaders, but what do they use their intelligence for? They use their intelligence to keep the working class pacified at home, and they use their intelligence to actually press against the oppressed nations and anybody who they consider could be their rivals, be it Russia, be it China. There are bigger warmongers against Russia and China. And Trump was pronounced enemy of the United States of America because he didn't want to have a war against Russia. He wanted good relations with Russia. Wouldn't you want good relations with Russia? Right. It's the only country which can obliterate the United States. No, you can't treat Russia like it's some kind of little African Rwanda Burundi. You can, you, you can push them over. You can't push Russia over. They were able to do it for 15, 20 years under, under Yeltsin because the, the rising Russian bourgeoisie needed the help of America to establish themselves. They've established themselves now. They cannot be made vassals of the United States. It's not pre-1917 Tsarist Russia where Russia could be made to do certain things. And even then Russia didn't do, 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 do things that, that were liked by, by everybody abroad. So in, in our view, these people, if they're wanting social progress, I support Bernie Sanders. Yes, he says certain things which are good. Why do I want to deprive my American comrades and proletarians of the health service for them. It's one of the biggest expenditures and one of the biggest causes of bankruptcy in the United States yeah. that people can't pay for 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 their health. And uh, if if you are involved in a car accident in America and a doctor comes to to attend to you, the first thing you want to know is have you got insurance? Well, you're dying and people want to ask you of insurance. All you want is you want treatment and, and you need to be taken into a hospital. It's a far more human system next door to you. The Canadians are able to do it. You don't want to learn anything from anybody else. From these, uh, you know, if you don't want to learn anything from the Soviet Union, which actually is the country that started National Health Service in a very comprehensive way, gave health to it to it to its its people in and brought every sphere of life in a in a progressive direction i was reading an article the other day in le monde diplomatique in 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 the july issue and it, the article is when the women's movement went global and the thrust of that article is that it was eastern europe and the soviet union that led the way when American leaders and Western leaders were busy worrying about what will happen if women were given more rights, the Soviet Union put a 22-year-old young woman into into space, Valentina Tereshkova. And everywhere the Soviet Union led. There were conferences held all over the place. In one of them, Angela Davis was present. And you could not those days say the Soviet Union was the leader, but it was the leader. It by example led the way, and that example had to be followed. You could not put women back in the cage that they were before 1917, and certainly not before they were in 1945. They learned from what was taking place. In fact, they used to joke that you went into the Soviet Union, the best engineer was a woman. 
the best cosmonaut was a woman, the best doctor was a woman, the best tractor driver was a woman. And and and, and all they could say were there were these were butch women, they'd lost their femininity. You don't lose your femininity because you're good at your job. You know, they were the first people, the Soviet Union, to form a women's squadron to fight against the, the Nazis, you know, the, in the Air Force. Everywhere they were the leaders. And it's not for nothing that they sent Sputnik in, into space, which actually shook imperialism to its foundation, that they were going to lose the, the entire race for, for science. These are the achievements of actually plants, Soviet economy. These are not the achievements of market capitalism. Because in market, you only produce if it will make money. Yes, anything else can take place, but that is incidental to it. Nobody produces unless money is to be made. And that exactly is the reason for the crisis of overproduction. Capitalism can produce like there's no tomorrow. But there is a tomorrow because the goods cannot simply be given to people because they need them. The goods have to be sold. And it, at, at the same time as it increases production, it impoverishes people. Their ability to purchase that is more and more limited, relatively speaking, and that causes crisis after crisis. And that will be the effect of market wherever market is brought. China itself had three or four crises of overproduction since market reform started. They were in, the, in the 80s, market reform started, there was a crisis there. Then there were crises in the, in the, in the, in the 90s. And each time, tens of millions of workers lose, lose their jobs. And that is not the way a planned economy works. Planned economy does not deprive people of their jobs. The Soviet Union got rid of unemployment by 1932 and until its dying days, there was no unemployment in the Soviet Union. Now, the biggest curse for the working class is the specter of unemployment, accompanied by no health service, accompanied by no housing, accompanied by no education. And if you get rid of these, these are the tremendous achievements of planned economy. Absolutely. Um, now, in addition to being a critic of the Labor Party, uh, you've also been a critic of Trotskyism. Uh, and, and Trotskyism seems to be everywhere, it seems. Uh, now that there's so much interest in socialism uh, here in the United States, I mean, more than I've ever seen in my life, all of a sudden uh, we have the, you know, the ruling class trotting out uh, Trotskyism. Like, oh, OK, you want to be a socialist? Well, here's Trotskyism. Go and be a Trotskyist. Now, you gave a presentation on Trotskyism, and you wrote a book on Trotskyism as well, Trotskyism or Leninism, I believe your book was called. Um, and you gave a presentation uh, where you talked about, you said, you know, most Trotskyists will never talk about the theory of permanent revolution, which is the entire basis of, of Trotskyist ideology. Can you explain what Trotskyism is to our viewers and why Trotskyism is counter-revolutionary? If you talk to an average Trotskyite, average, I'm talking not of the top leadership, they do not know Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution. They never heard of it. The only thing they've heard of it, Trotsky wanted revolution everywhere. He wanted world revolution. And yeah. Stalin wanted revolution in only one country. And he, right. was a re he was a reactionary. And that's the end of it. There's no argument. And because this is an easily understood argument, so the young person coming to the movement, if you ask him, do you want revolution in just one country or everywhere? Well, of course he say, I want everywhere. Well, Trotsky stood for revolution everywhere. Stalin stood for revolution in one country. So straight away, over a 
cup of tea, you turned one person into an anti-Stalinist and a pro-Trotskyist. And after four or five years of distributing leaflets for the Trotskyists, he gets disillusioned and leaves. Basically, they produce, they are a machine for producing disillusioned people, not for progressing them in the direction of politics. Absolutely. So, very, you, very good point. That is so true. That is a, such a true thing. So many people go into those Trotskyist groups and then they go out of Marxism permanently. Such a good observation. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's, that's really no, a good no, point. No, Let's, please continue. No, interruption is good. Uh, and more than that, they don't stop there. Some of them became neo- neocons. Mm-hmm. They became proper imperialists. The way they actually belong, in my view, theoretically, that is where their line leads. If you will allow me two minutes to explain this theory of permanent revolution. Sure, go ahead. At the time, and at the beginning of the, of, the, of the 20th century, the Russian bourgeois democratic revolution was in the offing. It was impending. Everybody knew it was coming. And there were two sections of the Russian Communist Party, which those days called, was called the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, RSDLP. One was headed by Lenin, and they believed that the coming revolution was coming. It would be a bourgeois revolution. It will not straight away institute socialism. So, socialism. And But to make that revolution, the proletariat, which was in a minority, could not do it on its own. It needed the support. And who could it get the support from? The majority of the population being peasantry. It had to be the peasantry. And it had to have a program for mobilizing the peasants, to mobilize them for the democratic revolution. And that democratic revolution would then, if it was led by the proletariat, would in due course pave the way for a socialist revolution. The Menshevik section, on the other hand, believed the coming revolution was going to be a democratic revolution. No difference between them and the Bolsheviks on that. But because it was a bourgeois democratic revolution, it must be headed by the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie is historically the leader of the bourgeois democratic revolution. And when they came to power, they will then institute bourgeois reforms and capitalism will develop over a long period of time. Only when then the proletariat became the majority of the population, you could think about socialism. Trotsky sat in between. He said, yes, a revolution could take place. The proletariat could head it. Yes, it could, but but it could not rely on the support of the peasantry because the peasantry were, in Trotsky's view, a reactionary class. That's it. Of course, they're landowners. They're conservative, even if they own one acre, acre of land. You know, even the guy who owns one bedroom flat in Manhattan thinks himself he's a, he's a great prop, property owner. So ownership of property does bring conservatism, no question about it. But he said, in that, under any condition, they, 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 they could not be relied upon. So if the revolution took place, how would it sustain itself? Well, if it just stayed a revolution in Russia, it, it was doomed to failure. It will die. So by coming to power, the Bolsheviks would have acted as catalysts, and they will then inspire revolution in Western Europe. And unless the revolution came in, not if, if in every country, but in majority of the developed capitalist countries, then the revolution would fail. And But if it succeeded, then the pro- successful proletariat in Western Europe will come to the help of the beleaguered Russian proletariat 
and rescue them and the revolution will become permanent. That's the theory of permanent revolution. But as Lenin pointed out very early, revolution in many countries together, let alone in all the countries, is a rarity and is not proven by history to be correct. So if the proletariat has come to power, it must then go on to build socialism. The proletarian country must act as a base for world revolution. It obviously cannot rest itself just in its self-sufficiency. It must everywhere rouse people to revolution. And even by building socialism and doing no more, it would be acting as a spur to the proletariat of other countries. And that's precisely what happened. I met a Trotskyite from your country once near the walls of the Kremlin. I knew him very well. I won't tell you his name. And we're standing there. And I said, what is your difference with Stalin? Well, he said, well, we wanted revolution everywhere. But I said, the revolution didn't come. Russia was left alone to defend itself. If you had been in charge of Russian affairs at that time, there were two choices facing you. We're on our own. We must defend our revolution and build whatever we can. Or switch the light off, pull the shutter down and saying, that's it, our day will come some other time. What would you do? He said, I'll go on building it. I said, in that case, you have no dispute with Stalin or anybody else. I gave him a bouquet of flowers. I said, I'm going to put some flowers at the grave of Stalin. And would you do the same? And to his credit, he did, right? Now, I, I say that not out of boastfulness, but when you engage an honest Trotskyist with, with that thing, they have to accept that. Now, one of the doting Trotskyites is Isaac Docher. But he had a modicum of scholarly objectivity in him. If you read his book, I mean, he's written a trilogy of Trotsky. He was a doting yes. Trotskyite. He praises Trotsky everywhere. And when you finish reading those three volumes, Trotsky looked such a miserably puny character. He, he comes out as a attitudinizing poser. And that's what, what he was. As our own spy, uh, uh, Sir Robert Bruce Lockhart said, I, he'd been sent by the British government as a spy to undermine Lenin and to support Trotsky. He said, after living there for a few months, I discovered there was nobody in the Bolshevik hierarchy who didn't think Lenin was next to God. And there was nobody who didn't think that they were superior to Trotsky. And he said, but I got the, and, and this is the word they use, but I got the opinion, I got the impression that Mr. Trotsky would die fighting for Russia if there was a large enough audience to watch it. Oh, wow. I, was, the man was totally vain. Caleb, if one's theory is wrong and practice is right, one has to jettison theory and go to the practice. But in the case of Trotsky, if the theory is wrong, then the practice must be jettisoned and you must go after the theory. And that really is not only the Trotsky's failure, and that's what lead, leads them to actually become, in my view, police agents and spies. You know, what started as an erroneous ideology in the working class movement ended up being an agency for the intelligence services of the major imperialist country. That also explains the personal tragedy of Trotsky. He was no doubt a gifted person, a brilliant person, 
but with the wrong theory, that's where he ended up. And wrong, wrong theory will always lead you. Sometimes one follows wrong theory because it seems to be the easy route to popularity, a passport to popularity. Well, we're not in popularity stakes. Revolutionary business is a hard business. You can spend all your life and die having achieved pretty little, as indeed I am standing in front of you as an example. You know, there's no personal glory, there's no personal benefit, but you are part of a continuing, you are making a contribution. We can't achieve certain things because circumstances are not right. Our successes will achieve it. If they don't achieve it, the next generation will achieve it. And unless you have that kind of stamina and faith, you cannot work in that movement. Four months before the Russian Revolution, Lenin was giving a lecture to the uh, Swiss youth and saying, those of you who are young enough to live to see a revolution, you will do that. And then four months later, he's leading a revolution. History sometimes moves so slowly. As Marx and Lenin repeated several times that 30 years pass and nothing happens. Then come times when in 30 days, things happen that haven't happened for 30 years. And, you know, I keep on hoping things will turn and that's, that's what will happen. But we can't then wait for those days to build a viable organization that will be able to give leadership to the, to the working class. That is our job. I'm not really worried about what the Chinese comrades do. They have a 95 million membership. They can sort, sort out their own affairs. My idea of, of being critical of market socialism is not to have a go at China. My idea is to have a go at market socialists in the capitalist world, proper capitalist world. I want them to be working on the right lines because if they start from the wrong line, they'll never succeed. Right line does not always guarantee victory because that depends on the balance of forces. But with the wrong line, you can never ever achieve, achieve victory. If we are actually trying to tell people, we will come to power and we'll establish the market. This is you're redundant. There's no need for you. We've already got a market. It's working itself very well. Why, why, why don't you leave it alone? So we're really trying to defend not only Stalin. Stalin doesn't need, need, need my defense. It doesn't need anybody's defense. He, his work is there for everybody to see what he has done and what he hasn't, hasn't, hasn't done. And so we are defending our own future. We are trying to defend our own movement. That's what we're trying to do. Wow. Well, um, I guess my last question for you uh, will be, uh, you mentioned, you know, the need to uh, to continue having stamina and, and organizing, even if you don't see results. You know, one thing that I have repeatedly tried to bring up in my broadcasts and other things is that, that this is a fundamentally optimistic movement. Marxism is fundamentally optimistic. It says we can get beyond capitalism, get beyond imperialism to, to socialism, and eventually to the higher stage of communism. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by asking you, uh, you know, what what are the reasons that you see and that you've observed over the course of your lifetime that give a reason to be optimistic, that give a reason to be hopeful uh, to those of us who want justice and equality in the world? The basis of my um, optimism is twofold. First is the sheer power of Marxism-Leninism, of the theory of Marxism-Leninism. I am convinced from reading that 
that that is the course for humanity to follow. I mean, no other movement, no other social science has traced the development of mankind to the present stage as well and as scientifically as has Marxism and Leninism. No other social movement, no other section of sociology has explained what the future of mankind is than Marxism and Leninism. And then it's not just theory. That theoretical thought is confirmed by the practice of socialism ever since 1917. Socialism is no longer a theoretical question. It has been put into practice. Movements can go back. You know, sometimes you put money on a horse and the donkey runs in the opposite direction. It's not Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin's fault that what was built earlier was destroyed by their successors. This can happen to movements. It happens to every movement. It happened to Christianity. It happened to even capitalist movements after the French Revolution. Everywhere, monarchies came back. But capitalism could never come back in the old, uh, the, the monarchies could never come back in the old form. They had to cede power increasingly to the bourgeoisie. And although capitalism has made a comeback in those parts where there was socialism reigning supreme at one time, life cannot be put back to what it was before. People people have learned. You go into the territory of the former Soviet Union. Who is the most popular person, even according to bourgeois polls? Stalin. And what is that for? It's not because they're nostalgic about it. Yes, they are nostalgic. There's a lot to be nostalgic about. The only people who can't be nostalgic is who have no great achievements in the past. There's nothing to be nostalgic about. I mean, your country is one example. You know, beyond the bourgeois uh, movement, there's nothing to be nostalgic about. 200 years of wars against other countries, 200 years of racial oppression. The founding fathers of America were revolutionaries, no doubt. I don't deny they were revolutionaries. But what was their idea of African-Americans? They were not full human beings. The first American constitution written by the most radical people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, etc. What does it describe them? Half a human being or three quarters of a human being? I don't know how you describe a person as three quarters of a human being. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that is what they... And even today, the Americans have to, have to face the consequences of that. You fought a civil war and you lost 10% of your then existing population in the civil war. That was supposed to have put an end to, 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 to slavery, but it didn't. Within 10 years, the reconstruction was put an end to. The northern states, having established bourgeois rule, came to an agreement with the slaveocracy, and state after st- state in the south passed legislation to deprive black people of the right to vote, which they didn't then gain again until the civil rights movement in, 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 the, in, in the 60s. So really, my optimism is, do I want to follow that system, which still practices racial discrimination, which still wages wars, it can kill two million Iraqis in the name of human rights, in the name of life, in the name of, you know, it can kill tens of thousands of people in Afghanistan in the name of bringing education to women, but they don't bring education to anybody. And what is more, because they're waging unjust wars, 
There's not a single war that the United States has won since the Second World War. The, the victorious war they were involved in was led by the Soviet Union. America and Britain claimed the credit because Soviet Union is no more there to defend its record. But everybody knows that the Soviet Union lost 27 million in that war. And they were the ones who made a defining contribution. United States and America did their best to actually prevent the Soviet Union from winning. That's why they were not opening the second front. Their all, whole idea was to weaken their rival imperialist power, Germany, and to weaken the much-hated Soviet, Soviet Union. And then in the end, they would come as peacemaker and say, no children, you don't fight this way. We are going to help you establish peace and order. That didn't take place. The Soviet Union actually the Soviet forces after the Battle of Stalingrad were on the move. After the Battle of Kursk, they were moving across the Polish frontiers and they were coming towards uh, Berlin. After the Battle of Moscow with the Soviets won against, against Germany, some German soldier had written on one of the walls in a village 30 uh, kilometers from Moscow, uh, we, we, we are off to Berlin. And the Soviet soldier came subsequently and put a rejoinder, we'll see you there then. And, <laughs> and they fulfilled that promise because at the end of April, beginning of May 1945, as the Soviet red flag went over the Reichstag, Führer and his entourage committed suicide. These are the defining, crowning achievements of socialism. These are not the achievements of a failed system. Soviet Union couldn't have won the war just as a capitalist country. It won the war because of a Soviet system. It won the war because it had created a fraternity of nations, which was the Soviet Union. Everyone from Kazakhstan to Tajikistan to Turkmenistan to Ukraine, Ukrainians to Russians made a contribution in that war. They were proud to fight in the great patriotic war of the, of, of, of the Soviet people. They were able to fight because they had built an economy on the basis of planning which could withstand that war, which could produce better material than the Nazis did, aircraft, T-34 tanks and everything, which could actually have better agriculture, which even during those dark days supplied people with food, which could actually fight to the last person in every single bat battle from air force to combat, hand-to-hand uh, -hand, hand fighting, they proved superior. They're the ones who won the war. And the second front was only opened when it was clear that if it wasn't opened, who knows where the, where the Red Army's victories will, 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 will stop. And so really there is every reason for us to be optimistic. There is every reason for us to be proud of our own grandparents, you know, not other side's grandparents, not in a genealogical sense, but in a, in a political and ideological sense. Our ancestors are Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, and people who fought for these revolutions, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Fidel Castro, anybody who fights for revolution against imperialism, they are ancestors. And it doesn't matter which country they come from, what the color of their skin is, we honor them and we follow their line. Wow. 
Wow. Well, you know, I will just disagree with one thing you said, which is I think that your achievements are vast. I think if you look at, at what has, has happened, uh, when I look at, at the organization you've built, at, at the dynamic body of work that you have produced, uh, I think your achievements have been vast. And you have really given your life to the struggle against imperialism and the struggles of the working class uh, in Britain and around the world. So I just want to thank you for the great honor of being able to interview you. I'll be posting this on YouTube, and I hope that, that many people watch it and really engage with what you have to say. I want to thank you once again for your time, and thank you on behalf of our viewers. Thank you, Mr. Harpel Brar. Thank you, Caleb, for, for uh, sparing time from your very busy schedule to, 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 to interview me. I, whether I agree with you or disagree with you on, 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 on my achievements, uh, that's irrelevant. The main thing is we are all in it together to promote this movement and we must continue on that, that line. Never be satisfied with what we have achieved. Yes. There's a lot, there's a lot more to be done. And that is really what, what keeps us going. That's what unites us. And, you know, I've never met you, but I've always felt that we are very close, close, close to you because it's these ideas. It's our faith in the future, revolutionary future of mankind, our faith in the planned production for society, which gets rid of the anarchic system of capitalism, of wars, of racial oppression, which keeps us together. And really, it's a greater bond of friendship than one has with even members of one's own family, unless they are in the same business as ourselves. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. Thank you once again for, for your time. Thank you.